Welcome to the DadWork Podcast. My name is Kurt Storing, your host and the founder of DadWork. My guest today is Mike Huber, and we go deep talking about the fears, thoughts, and decisions leading to Mike's divorce, navigating the risk to step into the unknown, the logistics of mindfully co-parenting and reaching common ground, taking full responsibility, being honest, and communicating effectively, breaking the cycle and forgiving your own parents, recovery from Mike's gambling addiction, what dads can learn from Mike's expertise as a mental performance coach for young athletes, and how to differentiate the roles of coach, mentor, and father. Mike Huber is a mental performance coach, father, athlete, and mentor. Before entering mental performance coaching, he spent over 20 years as a successful business consultant working for globally recognized professional firms such as Ernst & Young, KPMG, and Cushman & Wakefield. He came to realize that his traditional consulting career was truly aligned with his mission of helping others be better. Today, he's a certified mental performance consultant with a master's degree in sports psychology. His practice is geared to helping athletes and performers of all types to gain a mental and emotional edge and pursue their potential in sport and life. His most important job is his father to his two children, Patrick, 13, and Lucy, 11. You can find Mike online at freshmanfoundation.com on Instagram and Facebook at The Freshman Foundation or on Twitter at The Fresh Found. This is an excellent conversation. I got introduced to Mike and he was immediately vulnerable and open and willing to go there, even though this is almost outside of his wheelhouse to be on a a podcast like this. And so I'm just so grateful for Mike to be able to share his story because as you'll hear, one of the biggest steps he took was finally putting himself out there and being open and being vulnerable. And this is like almost part of his own healing journey to share this journey with you. So I hope you learn a lot from this. There's a lot of great stuff from uh, Mike's recovery to addiction and divorce, as we already talked about, as well as there's some great tips at the very end uh, around what Mike does with young athletes that I think you as a father will be able to implement and help your sons and daughters with. All that being said, let's welcome Mike Huber to the Dad Work Podcast. Here we go. Mike Huber, thank you and welcome to the Dad Work Podcast. I'm excited to talk to you uh, because there's a lot of stuff that I have been seeing from guys in my community who are like, single fatherhood, uh, how do I teach my kids, all this kind of stuff. And like, you just came up as the guy to talk to. So welcome and uh, thanks for spending time with me, man. Thanks so much, Kurt. It's great to be on. Yeah. And, and one of the questions I asked before this, I was like, okay, you've got you know a business, you're doing this kind of thing, but like, why, why are you sharing your story? Because it seems to me like this is, you're not like in men's workspace. You're not in like the, I don't know, the kind of stuff that I'm doing necessarily, but it's so impactful. So like, why do you want to share everything that you're going through? Cause it, it's really vulnerable. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, you know, given my own experiences, I just think it's really important for me to share what I've been through because I find that it helps other people with what they're going through. And um, I've had a lot of people in my life who have opened up to me and have given so willingly of their time and energy and sharing of themselves. I just feel like it's the, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And, and it makes me feel better about myself. You know, if I'm talking about it selfishly, you know, being able to tell my story openly at 46 years old is pretty, is pretty groundbreaking for me because for most of my life I kept, many things to myself and you know the lack of willingness to share openly probably hurt me in a lot of ways you know in my past 
Yeah, and that's actually an interesting point because I was shocked that simply the act of telling your story, and you're right, it does feel selfish almost, like, oh, who's mm-hmm. going to want to listen to me? Like, I'm taking up space here. And yet, there's something about simply vocalizing what you've gone through and having people listen that it's like, oh, man, what a weight off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also heard you say before we were talking about this that there's like this belief on how men should be, like, strong. Is there anything else to add to that? Like, do we need to be like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a detriment. You know, I think we live in a world now where there's so much pressure and there's so much outside influence. And I think trying to do everything on your own and keeping things to yourself while it may appear to insulate people from what you have going on, I think it just builds up more stress into the system and ultimately leads to potentially not so great behavior. And again, I'm, I'm only speaking from experience and I'll, I'm sure we'll get into that, but I think, you know, the inability to open up to people, um, led to some really significant issues for myself. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. And just like, we got to have permission to talk about this kind of stuff, which is what you're doing today. So thank you. Um, I want to start what, uh, how many kids have you got? I have two kids. I have a boy who's, yeah, boy who's 13 and a daughter who's 11. Okay, and we're getting into the teenage stuff too. Man, we're going to cover a lot of good stuff that I've been being, <laughs> I've been asked about. And I'm just like, man, I'm not there yet. You know, I haven't gone through this. My kids are like, the oldest one's almost nine. Man, okay, so we're going to talk about divorce, single parenting, addiction, maybe some teenage parenting. Maybe we'll go there, uh, as well as like the work you do with young uh, athletes. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I want to dive into just like what fatherhood w- was like for you, because I'm always interested. For me, it was awful. Like I hated it and I was bad at it. It triggered me. I was angry all the time. And it was like the single greatest teacher. I was like, I have to sort myself out because I didn't know how bad I felt until my kids showed me. And so I'm grateful for them forever. But what was that journey like for you? Was it smooth sailing or did you also have a bit of tumultuous times? Um, I definitely wouldn't describe it as smooth sailing, but I would say that I knew from a very early age before I became a father that I wanted to be one. Um, and so when my kids were born, um, I was really happy, you know, at least externally happy that they were there. I felt really grateful to have them. And it was, it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel like a burden. Um, it was definitely hard though. I learned a lot of things and I went through a lot of stuff in the early years with, with my kids. But I think the bigger challenge for me became maintaining a relationship um, with my ex-wife because there's so much more responsibility and so much more stress and, you know, um, just strain on your time and your ability to do the things you love to do that, that really put, um, that really put some stress in the system. And, and that was really hard for me, that, that aspect of everything else, the kids were easier on the easy side. Everything else got really hard with the kids. Mm, interesting. And what were those, what were those things like with your partner? Why did it break down? What was that breakdown looking like? Just lack of communication. Um, I think is a big part of it. You know, I think everybody's sort of frazzled, you know, a lot of the time, especially when you have little ones. Um, and our relationship just took a back seat, right? Everything was about the kids and it wasn't about us. And I resented that, but I, I also was at a point in my life where I didn't really know what I was feeling. Like I didn't understand my feelings about it. And so it just led to a lot of anger and resentment towards her because I felt like it was her fault, but that's not true. It's a two way street, but yeah, I I felt, I felt neglected. I resented her. It just, I I felt like I was kind of on my own and that, that was a really, really difficult time in my life. Mm, Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And 
How did you start to understand these feelings? You said like you didn't really know how to deal with it. You didn't know what you were thinking or feeling then. Yeah, not thinking, pardon me, feeling. Um, how did you start to develop those things, assuming that that's sort of where you're at now? Yeah, so, you know, not to jump ahead, but I really started to understand that in recovery. Um, right, okay. So that was about nine years ago. So my kids, my oldest was four when I went into recovery from a compulsive gambling addiction. And that was a real turning point in my life in terms of not only kind of just getting my behavior into a place where it was more respectable, but I really did start to do a lot of that internal work, so to speak, you know, not only in, in programs, um, but also with a therapist on, on my own. And so that's where I really started to put my finger on like, what's going on here? Why was this happening? You know, what was happening there? Why did I feel this way? And I started to understand and unwind a lot of that. And just the, by virtue of practicing and working on that, now I'm in a place in my life where I know like, oh, I'm angry and here's why I'm angry and this is what it's relating to. And so I can make sense of it faster so that I don't have blow ups because there was a lot of anger and I didn't know right. how to deal with anything other than to blow it out. And uh, that was just not a healthy way to do it for me and the other people around me. Yeah, I relate to that big time. That was my biggest thing too, just blowing up at every instance. Mm -hmm. And then I got to be in control and it was all me. Um, the, the thing that came up from that that I want to touch on is that like a lot of the things that happen to guys that make a change is like, it's the Mack truck. You get hit with this truck and it blows everything up and then you learn a great lesson. And the, like what I love to do on this show is just like share those stories mm -hmm. because like, to be frank in your life, if you're listening, it might take a big blow up. Like it really might. We're very stubborn as men, but what I'm hoping to do with this series, with this podcast is introduce you to stories like Mike's where it's like, okay, there was this thing. You can get to this level where it just blows up and yeah, you learn some great stuff, but like, man, the stuff in the wake. So if you're listening start to pay better attention to your body, to your feelings, introspect a little bit, because it doesn't have to be that. It might be like a two by four across the back of the head, but like get there before the Mack truck. It's so much easier. Uh, so, so use what you're listening to, to like check in with your own body and see like, oh, am I relating to anything Mike's saying here? Um, I, I want to go into a little bit more about like what the process is like for you to decide to have a marriage end, because this is something that like I think about and I go like, well, what would it take? Like what repair work could I have done? And, and one of the things I'd like to ask is what would you have done differently today? So maybe start us at like what that looked like, the conversation, like how are you going to parent your kids? Just because like a lot of guys are going through that and they want to know what questions to ask and where to go. And then I'm going to ask like, what might you have done differently? Well, if I go back, I mean, the idea that divorce was an option went back a number of years. So I've been divorced for about 18 months. It probably goes back three or four years where I started to work through some of the feelings I was having about myself and my life in therapy. And through that, I started to contemplate, like, is this the place, is this relationship right for me? Um, because when I entered into the relationship 18 years ago or whatever it was, uh, I was a very different person in my 20s than I am now. And so there was almost this like hypothesis that I entered the relationship on false pretense. You know, like I just wasn't the same person that I was. But at the same time, I have two kids. I have a house. We've built this life together. It's it's not something where I would just wake up one day and go, hey, we're going to get divorced. It was like I spent, you know, a long time thinking about what that would look like and had a lot of fear, right? Like, how am I going to do this? What's it going to look like? How's it going to feel? How am I going to have this conversation? But 
ultimately it just became a process where the relationship started to become unmanageable. And we started to talk about it sometimes civilly, sometimes not about the idea that this is not working because I was looking for my partner to change. And certainly she wanted different things from me and it just kind of reached an impasse. Um, what would I have done differently? You know, honestly, I'm not sure I, I would have done anything differently. I mean, I, if I could go back to the beginning, I probably would have done things differently before we were even married in terms of why am I in this relationship? Like, you know, what do I need to work on? But I, I never thought that way for the longest time. And once I got to that place in my life, it was almost like, I want to say it was irreparable because we had gone to couples counseling a couple of times. The first time was very effective, which was when I first came into recovery. We learned how to communicate, and this therapist was quite good. And then the second time we went, which was about a year before we decided to get divorced, it was sort of the beginning of the end. We just we figured out in that process that this is like irreparable. We can't do anything about it. So, um, you know, I'm, I don't know that I would have done much differently. It sort of just ran its course. At least that's the way I the way I view it. Right. So it, it sounds to me like it was quite a, a mindful decision, especially after getting those tools on introspection and communication. Um, when you were talking there, I was like, oh, communication keeps coming up. So can you give us just like an overview of what you consider like good communication in relationship nowadays? Yeah, I, I, I think for me, you know, I, I, it always starts with me. You know, I, I'm kind of at a place in my life where I fully believe in taking, you know, responsibility for my behavior and my, my side of the street, you know, so to speak. And so I always start with me. So I think about what I can and should do as a communicator on my side. And to me, it's just about being honest. Right. And that's a very simple principle that I live by is like, be honest. Now there's a fine line between being honest and, um, respectful and being honest and being, you know, offensive or hurtful. And that's something I, that's a line I walk, you know, pretty, pretty, um, gingerly because I'm not always great at it, but I do believe in transparency. And so for me, if I'm communicating honestly with somebody and sharing what I believe to be true and sharing my feelings, I mean, there's, there's nothing I can do about the way they react to it. So for me, it's just about saying, Hey, this is where I'm at. This is what's bothering me. I know maybe this is going to hurt, but not doing it in a disrespectful way. And you know, whatever happens happens. And the, the divorce was definitely, a big part of my getting comfortable with that because there's so much fear about those conversations, like projecting onto like, well, what's going to happen or what's she going to say or, and I got over that. And now when I have relationships with people, I'm just like, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. This is what's important to me. And I understand if it's not important to you, but like, you need to understand this so that we can make good choices because when you don't have all the information, then you start to make bad choices and that kind of mm -hmm. you know that 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 becomes exponential and then you just can't can't get out of the the hole so to speak yeah shining a light on all the assumptions and shadows that the other person could make is man <laughs> so fundamental mm -hmm. and when you said like not caring about or not i don't think it was not caring just like not being afraid of what the other person's reaction yes. might be was that an issue with you beforehand like would you hold off because you're like ooh, i can't deal with what they're going to say hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, part of it is kind of me being, you know, embarrassed or ashamed to say something that I'm feeling because it's almost feels selfish, right? Like I felt that way a lot. Like I can't say this because like they're going to ridicule me or it's going to sound stupid. And 
a lot of the issues that I had in my relationship with my ex-wife were mine, were like, I just had low self-esteem. I didn't think enough of myself, to be honest. And so I would hold things back until I couldn't hold them back anymore. And then it was, you know, then it was the blow up, right? Um, you know, now it's, it doesn't get to that point, at least not nearly as much. So, um, you know, for me, it's about just saying, hey, you know what, there's nothing I could do. Because I could say the nicest thing in the world to you, Kurt, and give you a compliment and you could take it the wrong way, right? I can't control that, right? How we perceive things is, 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 is completely up to the individual. And so it's, for me, it's more about intent. You know, what's my intent in communicating this? And, you know, if my intent is good and it's pure and I'm being honest and the other person doesn't like it, it's not my fault. You know, I'm not responsible for their feelings. And I think that that's the way I felt before, you know, I call it codependent, whatever you want. Like I, my feelings were wrapped up in somebody else's and, you know, I don't want to hurt them because then it was going to be a reflection on me. Mm, yeah, there's so many good points in there. And uh, one of the things that I have been working on myself is just understanding that it's not my responsibility how other people um, take me in. Like show up as your full self and let other people make a judgment. And that's not a reflection on you. It's a reflection on them. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh man, they've got experiences that led them believe certain things about me. Even if I'm the most perfect thing to them, like I, I'm, I'm not going to be authentic to myself if I'm trying to please them, which feels terrible. And also like, you can't do that. You don't know what's in someone else's thing and it's not a reflection on you. And when we don't have, like you said, the self-esteem, which again, often comes from childhood, feeling like we are enough. Mm. We try to get the sense of feeling like we're enough from our relationships. And that's why all of this work that you do on yourself as a dad is like, it passes on to the next generation. Like, oh, I didn't realize I was hurting as a kid. I didn't realize I was hurting now as an adult because of what I did to, as a kid. And it's like, pass that on to your kid now. Get oh that goodness. and like, put it on to the next, next, uh, yeah, the next level down. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that was, that, that it's been described to me as breaking the cycle. Right. And, yes, and that is something exactly. that's really very important to me. And I was very resentful of my parents, you know, in terms of, you know, what they did. And, and, and I always felt like I wasn't enough. And that's something that has come up a lot in, in my therapy, you know, like, you know, never good enough. Everything is a struggle. Like what's wrong with me. And it, it, you know, and I always kind of held it against my parents. And then at, at some point I just, I made peace with it and I forgave them. And they, and I sort of said to myself, like, they're doing the best that they can with what they have, right. The resources that they have at their disposal, because it was passed down to them. But now as a father, I have the opportunity to not do it that way, to make my kids feel like they're unconditionally loved and that they're enough. And that that's the only thing that matters. Um, and I really work hard at that to, for my children to believe that no matter what, I'm always going to be there to support them and love them. And whatever they choose to do is their choice and, and it's not mine. And that's, that takes work too, right? Because sometimes, you know, you see your, your kids out in the world and you're like, oh, I wish they would do this or do that. Or why did they do that? Or what's the, what are these people going to think? And like, ultimately, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that they know that they're taken care of and, and they have somebody to come back to. And if, if that's the case, they're going to be well-adjusted human beings, which is really all I, I want for them. Mm, that's so good. That's such a fundamental layer of fatherhood, just like yeah. being there for them as they show up. Man, and it's so hard. You're right. Like, I think about that going like, yeah, but I want to control. Like, if I'm not in control, I feel out exactly. of control, which is scary. 
Oh man, especially getting into the teenage years. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> I think back to what I was like as a teenager going like, wow, my parents exercised a lot of grace. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh man. The, uh, the last point on the communication thing that I want to touch on just cause it brought it up to mind was that it's okay to have needs and it's okay to express those needs. And I think where a lot of men get in trouble is they think that when they express their needs, they deserve to have them met. And this is what I assumed too. Like, okay, you want me to tell you what? Well, here's what I want. Here's what I want, like the attention and whatever for my wife. And then it's like, I'm going to be upset if you don't give it to me. But that's like, that's completely preposterous. So I have learned slowly to express my needs and state them so that like we talked about at the beginning, I can just like speak my truth and that feels good. Mm. And if she's willing to meet me, then she can, but I don't expect that to be met. Um, is that something that you've explored at all? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, it kind of comes back to what we can and can't control. Right. And we can, we can express our needs in a respectful way. That doesn't mean to your point, they're going to get met, but then we have a choice, right? Which is sort of ties back to the divorce, right? Like I was asking to have certain needs met. My ex was unwilling to meet them for whatever reason. Those are her reasons. And I don't fully understand them still to this day. And that's fine. And I, maybe I never will, but then I have a choice. Do I stay right in this relationship that's unfulfilling and making me unhappy? Or do I take a risk and move into a life that's much more uncertain from a lot of different perspectives, right? A single father, joint custody, 50, 50 financially, I'm on my own, right? Like there's a whole nother universe, but that's my choice. And every choice has a consequence. And that's the way I look at things now is like, okay, the information, like I get back from people. Now I have a choice. What am I going to do? You know, and then I have to live with it and you go forward and live with it. And that's been like the last three years of my life or four years of my life between the divorce and starting a business and all those things. Like I understand that every choice I make has a consequence. And if things don't work out, well, now I have to make another choice and that's on me. That's nobody else's responsibility. Yes. Oh yeah, man. Preach that. <laughs> I just I, I want will. everyone. I, I really believe in that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Me too. And it's just like, it's personal responsibility, make your own choices. And I love, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have like an opinion on divorce either way. Like I'm not one of those guys who's like, Oh, I never do it. And also not like, you know, maybe it's for the best sometimes. And what I heard there was like risk. You have to sometimes take a risk because if you don't, you would have been unhappy for who knows how long you would have suffered. Your ex-wife would have suffered. Your kids probably would have suffered. And it took not knowing. I think that's a huge problem today is we only want to do things we know the outcomes to. We are not willing to be wrong. Like we, I was thinking today, actually listening to a podcast, we even want to know how consciousness works. Scientists are studying where in the brain it goes because we can't take not knowing. Mm -hmm. And so like when you bring that back to this basic level, like sometimes you can't know and that's part of being human. So I love that you took Mm -hmm. the risk because that's what I felt. I moved to Thailand with my kids for like two years. And I was like, this is the riskiest thing I've done in a long time. Yeah. But the lessons that we learned and the life that we lived is like, oh, I could never have got that from not taking a risk. Yeah. So yeah, I just love that, man. Yeah, for me, and the thing that comes out of that, and the word hasn't come up yet is faith, right? Having a faith, having faith in something, right? That no matter what happens, things are going to work out, you know? And, and that doesn't mean they're going to work out the way you want them to. It means they're going to work out, mm, right? And I think you're yes. right. There is this element of, and we live in a world where everybody wants to control every outcome. And when things don't go our way, 
people get very, very bent out of shape. And so they just live with the status quo. And quite honestly, I, you know, I'm just not willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. There are hard choices you need to make to be able to live a life that other people will never because they won't make those choices. Um, I want to talk about parenting as it relates to, um, you know, being divorced and and co-parenting now. So what were the sort of fundamentals or guardrails or conversations you had when it was like, Hey, this is going to happen, getting a divorce. What were those conversations like? Um, and like, what did you decide on how you'd parent together? Okay. So first and foremost, the underlying principle in all of our communication about the children was they come first. And that has really served us well because whatever disagreements my ex and I have about stuff, whether it's co-parenting or, you know, our, you know, post-marital life, you know, together kind of having to deal with each other is always comes back to them. So if there was ever any disagreement or issue, it was always conducted behind the scenes because it was, this is going to be with their best interests at heart. And I would say 95% of the time we're on the same page, right? As it relates to them, we work it out and we always had very similar parenting philosophies, at least sort of, you know, in general. And so that's helped us a lot. I think there's some things on the margin that we disagree with, disagree on, but, um, but the separation has actually worked out for the best because we can run our own houses, households the way we want to. And so on those day-to-day choices, we're very different, but in terms of the, the big picture, we're very similar. Um, so co-parenting is, is pretty amicable. Um, you know, and we have to, because we're 50, 50. Um, we agreed on that right up front and to her credit, you know, I I said, I want 50% custody of the children. And she said, I wouldn't have it any other way. And so that, that was a really big step. And I think that was, you know, that was probably the greatest validation I've gotten in my marriage. And I was on the way out the door, which was to say, Hey, she trusts me enough to know that these kids are safe with me when she's not around. Mm. And I think that was the, the biggest endorsement I've, I've, I've gotten from her, frankly, in in our relationship, I was always a good dad. My kids, I mean, really genuinely. And I, we have a genuine relationship and she knows that. And if she tried to keep them away from me for more than, you know, what was legally allowed, I think she couldn't have, she couldn't have lived with herself. So by and large, things are, are really good because we share the same sort of underlying core values about how to, how to raise them. Mm, Okay. And were there, um, like sit down conversations specifically about this as you were finalizing divorce? Like, Hey, here's how it's going to look like, here's when we communicate, when these things come up, here's how we're going to deal with them. Um, like were there almost like a contract, I guess, like if you're going into a business partnership, you'd have these like worst case scenario plans. Were there things like that baked in so that you know that, you know, we're going to meet up and deal with this when they're like 15 and this is happening. Anything like that? Well, the, the, the divorce agreement itself lines lays out a lot of that, right? So there's a very specific guidelines about all the things you might imagine, how communications are supposed to go down, visitation, when this happens, this is, this is what happens when they turn 18 or when they turn 21. And Kyle, I mean, it is very, I mean, it's not detailed in terms of like anticipating scenarios, but they're very clear guidelines, which really does help. There have been a couple of instances where there have been differing interpretations of particular um, provisions of the agreement, particularly during COVID. There was definitely some disagreement about who was doing what, where, where were you going? 
and that none of that was addressed. So that was got a little bit dicey at times because we both wanted to live our own lives, but um, we had differing opinions about how to do that, you know, sort of safely. Um, but otherwise, it's it's pretty much laid out. And again, you know, when it comes back to making choices and decisions on behalf of the children, it really again comes back to what's best for them. And that's that's always that spirit of the agreement has always sort of led us back to I th- what I feel like are good choices and and mutually agreed upon choices between us, where there is not a lot of resentment or disagreement. Um, and that's been great. That makes my life so much easier. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect then. So the idea of just putting your kids first, and I haven't read this book, but I saw a book titled love your kids more than you hate your ex, something like that. (laughs) And like, I went like, I wonder if that sounds true. Like, I don't know. What what do you think about that? It sounds a hundred percent true. I think if I wrote a book about divorce, it might be that title, (laughs) but it's true. And and I don't, and I don't, you know, I I don't have any ill will toward my ex. I I just don't. I mean, there, there have been situations where I've been really frustrated with her, but I know she's a good person and I know she's a good mother. Um, she takes care of my children and, and frankly, she took care, you know, of a big part of my life when we were together and I, I want her to be happy. So I, I definitely don't, um, I don't have any ill will towards her. Um, and it was mutual, you know? So for me, it is, it's absolutely right. If, if I'm negatively affecting my kids because of my behavior towards my ex, like it's not, it's not right. It's not fair. They're put in the middle of something that's really difficult to begin with. And so if you're making, if you're making them the center of the, you know, the putting them in the center of the argument, you know, on an ongoing basis, just going to create a lot of, a lot of damage, you know, emotional damage. And and we don't want to do that. And, you know, when, when my kids, you know, try to, you know, pit us against one another every now and then, you know, I take her side no matter what, Mm -hmm. even if I don't, if I don't agree, because I'm not going to sit there and tell my kid like, oh, your mom's wrong. Like, oh, no, this is what your mother said. And this is what goes. I can live with it. And I'll talk to her on the side if I have a problem, right? Which is what we do. You know, oh, I heard this, like what's going on versus like contradicting her to my kids. It's just not, it's confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And do you ever talk to your kids about like the, the impacts that this can have on them. And like, I don't know the statistics in terms of older kids, like my parents got divorced when I was three and like, that's had a lasting impact on me. And I just wonder, like, do you consciously have discussions with them? Which is like, this might hurt. This might be like, you know, trauma potentially. Here's some tools to like, think about this. Of course we always love you. And, and maybe that's just it. Maybe it's just like, they know, like you said before that they, that you love them unconditionally, but like, do those conversations ever come up? They do. Um, not frequently because I, I do, I personally believe that if I continue to show them that unconditional love, um, across the board all the time, that things will tend to work themselves out. But there are definitely times that things come up, especially for my daughter, who's my younger one. She's very perceptive and she's very, in, you know, tuned into her feelings and she'll bring stuff up, you know, like she'll mention like, why can't you get back together? Or, you know, listen, my, my kids have been exposed to me dating some. And, you know, when they ask me questions about that, like I'm very honest about it. And I think that's the way I handle it is to be very honest and respectful to them to say, Hey, this is just the reality of the situation. I know it stinks. I know you're uncomfortable, but I'm not dating because I want to replace your mother. I'm dating because I want to be happy. And you know, whether or not they fully understand that, I don't know. 
Um, but they get it at some level. And I think that just being that honest, you know, being honest with them goes a long way, even if it's confusing. And I think that's goes back to something you were saying before about always wanting to control part of that wanting to control as a parent is wanting to make sure that their feelings are not hurt, but you can't control that either. They're, they're Mm -hmm. kids. They're just like adults. They have feelings, they have their own thoughts. And by telling them feelings don't matter or that they're invalid because you want them to, to be okay. Like that's even worse than just letting them feel the feelings and move on. You know, that's the best lesson I could probably teach him is like, Hey, not everything's going to feel good here. You know what? You just gotta, you gotta work through it and I'm here for you, but I can't make you feel better. You can make you feel better. Mm, dang, man, that just like that landed with me. So mm. thank you. That's a, that's a fantastic lesson. I've never actually consciously thought of emotional control because yeah, you're right. Like I don't want anything bad to happen to them mm-hmm. and I'm going to do my best, but then you get into this like overprotective overbearing mm-hmm. And like, they're going to have to break out of that. And it's probably not going to be pretty if it's so overbearing. Um, so yeah, thank you for imparting that, man. Um, the, the last sort of thing on parenting, probably we might come back to it, is just if anything's like changed as you approach teenage years. I think you said your son was like 13. Mm-hmm. And is there anything you're doing now that's different? That's a really good question. Um, not really. Um if anything, I think I've probably, I've probably, I've tried to be, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm consistent in it, but I've tried to be a little bit stricter, to be honest with that, with you, because I feel like now, especially him, he's in more of a position to, he's mature enough and his cognitive development is enough that I can be strict with him and have, and he will listen and understand why I'm doing it versus the younger one still gets sort of like, why are you being mean to me? You know, he understands that I'm not being mean to him. I'm trying to help him by giving direction. And there are some habits that he has, frankly, as a 13 year old that, you know, I don't love, you know, as it relates to electronics and, you know, all these different things. But at the same time, like I'm partly responsible for that too. And so there's just also this balance of like letting him do what he wants to do within reason, because I don't want to be the one to tell him everything he can and should do. But at the same time, also setting boundaries for him because he's still 13 and he needs some guidance in his life. So I would say I'm becoming a little bit stricter with him. Um, but, but by and large, no, I think it's, to me, it's just show up for them, wake up, make sure that they understand that I love them and, you know, be there for them as much as I can be. And also like having them, and and maybe this is on the flip side, like, you know, I'm getting more comfortable one, leaving them on their own at certain instances. Um, because I can and, and I feel safe doing so, but also like just being like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to go out tonight and I'm, I'm going to leave you with somebody, you know, your mother or your grandparents or whoever, so I can go out and do something tonight if I want to. And I think that that's, I think it was a bit of a challenge in the beginning. Like I feel guilty that I'm going to go out and mm. do these things, but I would say overall, no, the parenting hasn't changed yet. My son's not into, you know, romantic issues you know like he's not like not there yet um so that that we have a little bit of ways to go hopefully but um it's been good i mean i'm I'm blessed my kids are my kids are awesome amazing yeah that it reminds me of just like almost an added layer of challenge to him Mm. in a sense like you know here's this freewheeling you do whatever you want and then the the strictness you know that can be a huge issue obviously we're just like no my way or the highway and kids resent that a lot of the time but if it's like i'm doing this as a challenge to you because young Mm. boys need challenge um i think that's actually 
an interesting way to, to frame it as well. Uh, and thank you for sharing all of that, man. Like this is just, I think we're probably going to go even deeper now, but uh, this is just, this is <laughs> feeling right. great. I love uh, it. I, I want to talk about addiction. Um, and I mean, I'll have questions uh, after this, but could you just walk us through like, what was your addiction? How did it get started? And then the, like, what were the consequences of that? Sort of just the story. Well, the story goes back quite a ways. So I started gambling when I was in childhood. Uh, I was exposed to it at a really young age. I grew up in a family where gambling was fairly normal. Um, big part of social life, family life with friends. Um, probably started around 12, you know, the first time I made a bet. Um, and that progressed through high school. I gambled through high school probably um for most of it playing card games with friends you know with my buddies but always had difficulty controlling myself in terms of the amount of money that i would lose and owing people money and getting you know bent out of shape and angry about things that were happening and you know obsessing and ruminating about it uh when i wasn't gambling um and then when I went off to college, it was really the first time in my life where I realized that I had a problem, or at least vocalized it. I was spending a lot of time at casinos on weekends in college with um, with a friend of mine who we would go together. And I lost, again, continue to lose a lot of money that I didn't have running up credit cards and things. And um, it just became you know, a very big part of my life, socially, emotionally. Um, you know, Looking back on it now, even then it was an escape from reality for me. It was a way to sort of not think about what, what's going on in my life and feeling my feelings and all those things. Um, and it progressed all the way through adulthood. Um, so when my first child was born, I was 33, 33, and I made a conscious choice to gamble every single day on sports. So at that point, to go back to sort of some of the things I was talking about before, like there was this really, this really deep sense of loss you know, like a grieving about the loss of my life as a single man, I think, you know, and at the time I had no idea, right? But looking back on it, that's the way I see it is like, well, now I'm a dad, I'm responsible for somebody else. I'm not going to have much of a social life. Like everything revolves around this other human. I never was resentful of my children in that way, but I think I did resent the fact that, you know, I wasn't ready emotionally to be a father, even though I wanted to be one. And so the gambling was just a way for me at night once the baby was asleep to kind of entertain myself, you know, watch, watch sports. I have a reason to watch sports. I was always into sports, but then it became sort of like this obsession that grew and grew and grew. So I, I ended up gambling every single day for about four years straight, um, which was an immense burden financially. It was an immense burden emotionally, uh, physically, I like went through, you know, physical, um, symptoms and some things I could talk about that, but, um, it just consumed my life. And at first it was sort of a way out to kind of just entertain myself, but it came, became my first thought every morning and my last thought every night. And, you know, I would say that it didn't necessarily impact my ability to be a competent father, although I definitely had my moments where I was checked out and I probably could have done a better job, but I was always putting them first. But the relationship with my ex-wife really, really suffered. Um, and it just became sort of this downward spiral to the point where when I decided to stop, because I did, it wasn't like I was caught or forced or anything like that. I made a choice. Um, I had started having panic attacks. That was sort of the the first sign that I can't sustain the 
the lying and the 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 the, the secret with the secret holding. You know, I was kind of keeping all the stuff to myself. I was taking money that didn't really belong to me or from us that she didn't know about, and uh, I was facilitating that habit. And I just couldn't live with myself anymore, and so I started to break down, and uh, eventually came clean to her. And that was in July of 2012, so a little over nine years ago. Wow, man! Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I have a number of questions, sort of maybe um, in a in a timeline sense. I'll try and get there, but like, what was what was it when you were like really young? that this feeling of like excitement was keeping you from because um like you said it was just a family thing and it's like this is what you do it's very easy to go there but was there an underlying feeling from the Mm. start that you were like numbing from or like what was the emotional behavior like underneath that addiction to start with sure um i mean let me just say too, I grew up in a house household of addiction. Um, and so that was a big part of it. Um, there was a lot of stress at a very young age. I grew up, you know, so to speak, grew up really fast sooner than I needed to. And I think it was just a way for me to escape from that circumstance and the feelings I had about myself, you know, just not being good enough and having very low self-esteem and, you know, the gambling, it, it kind of served a number of masters. I think one was it kind of, it gave me a sense of control. Um, I think, I think also it gave me an opportunity to spend some time with my father and, and another, other male family members who were into it. It was sort of like a bonding experience. Mm, Yeah. Um, something to talk about, something to do together. Um, and, and I, and I think just, you know, I, I loved sports and that was a big part of it. And the idea of being able to sort of engage in that and be the idea that I wanted to be right. I like the idea of like making these guesses, if you will, and, you know, getting the feeling that I was sort of like, you know, I knew more than the other person. So there's a lot of, a lot to it, but ultimately in the end of the day, it was just, it was escape from reality. It took my mind off of my problems and it put them into some other kind of, artificial universe that really had nothing to do with me, but I made it a part of my life. Right. And how did you know it was an addiction? Like you said, as you went into college or whatever, um, like it started to become a problem, uh, but then it took a while to do anything about it. So what was the point where you're like, man, this is not just something I do on the weekends, but like, this is an actual addiction. Yeah. I I think at various times it was always the idea that I just couldn't stop myself. Like, you know, like, you know, literally like I could not pull myself away from it unless it was like ripped out of my hands. Mm. And, you know, also that feeling of like, you know, when I was in college, I came home one morning cause I had been out all night at a casino. And I remember, I remember the details. Let's just say it was light when I came home and I had lost way more than I could afford. And I remember just breaking down and saying like, I remember it was the first time I ever said to myself out loud, like I need to get help. I think I may have even told a friend of mine. And because it was like, I knew, you know, that you shouldn't be doing this. You know, you can't afford it. You know that it's a stupid idea and you still do it anyway, because like there's this compulsion to just try to win your money back. And, you know, and, and I think you just sort of lose your, I I mean, I lost my emotional steam at points, but then because 
I feel like I'm so resilient because some of the experiences I had as in my childhood where you always sort of bounce back from things. And in that particular instance, I just dusted myself off and said, hey, how do I figure out how to solve this problem? And I did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I found a way. Always very resilient, resourceful, and you figure it out. But ultimately, you know, I got to the point where like, could I have figured out my problem at 37 when I came clean? Yeah, probably. But at the same time, I didn't want to anymore. Like the desire to do it wasn't there. I was like, I, I don't want to live my life like this anymore. And it just took a long time to get to that point where I was just going to throw my hands up and say, like, I give up, you know, because I, before that I wasn't willing to give up anything because that would show weakness, even though the behavior is inherently weak. Right. Okay. Uh, there's two last questions on addiction. Cause I want to get to the work you do with sure. kids. You. Um, so the last couple questions are, how did you like get the courage to come clean to your wife? Cause I can only imagine if there's someone who's like, Oh man, like I got to face what I'm dealing with right now, but I could never get clean with my wife. Cause like all these questions are not good enough. They're going to judge me, blah, blah, blah. Like, how did you build up the courage? And then uh, what's like the, the Coles notes to your recovery, just to give guys an idea of like where they might look uh, for resources. Great questions. So I think it, the courage came when I first started in therapy, because that was the first time in my life where I started to openly speak with somebody about my feelings. I had never done anything like that before. And I think once I opened the door there, it started to like seed the way for coming clean. Um, but the way it really happened was, so we were going on a family vacation, uh, at the end of July in 2020. And I had been having these panic attacks. I was really not in a good place. Um, and I was sort of just out of it still, even like a month, month and a half after I had the first one, I just was really like in the days almost. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, I don't want to ruin another family vacation because I had, I had ruined vacations before that, you know, in, in previous summers because I was too busy gambling and I didn't want to be there. I was kind of checked out. So I was like, I don't want to ruin the vacation. So I'm not, I said to myself, I'm not going to gamble this week. And for the most part, that was true. I held, held myself to that standard and it was a great week. I wasn't preoccupied. I wasn't, you know, disappearing. I wasn't like angry. None of those things. It was really, really very pleasant. And during the week I was reading this book that my therapist gave me about, um, being the child of an alcoholic. And it, I guess like, it really like opened my eyes because, um, it was like the first time in my life where I started to understand that it wasn't my fault mm, that yes, my father was the way he was. And it really took the burden off of me to say like, Hey, you, this is not, you know, you were just sort of born into this and, you know, in some ways I'm going to say it's your destiny, but in some ways you're sort of just, you learn that behavior and that's what you end up becoming. And that's exactly what happened. And I was like, oh wow, like this is my fault. And as I was reading that book, like I started to feel better and better about myself, but then I also started to feel this really intense guilt of like, oh my goodness, like what have I done? What have I been doing? And I can't really live with myself. Like I, I, I could easily have not said anything to her and kept going, but like, I just was like, so, um, I was just so unhappy with myself and I had so much guilt. I was like, I have to come clean. And I did. And I knew that that risk I was taking, cause it was a really big risk could mean that that was going to be the end of my marriage at that point. But I had lived with so much for so long. Like I just couldn't keep it in whether that was the right decision or not. I don't know, but, um, I did. And, um, it was rough. I mean, it was rough for a while. You know, we didn't, we stayed together for a long time after that. Um, 
but it was a tough go getting through that. And um, I went to my first, I went to Gamblers Anonymous. That's been sort of my path to recovery. Um, and I've been in there for over nine years, continue to go participate in meetings and, you know, make that, I try to make that a big part of my life um, because it's helped me. And, and that's where I got first got help from other people. And that's what inspired me to do what I do now, which is to try to help other people with, you know, with their lives. Man. Yeah. Thank you. I feel like there's this whole conversation that could go on in recovery. Um, like, is that the step program that you went through then? Correct. Yeah. And, yep. and that's, that is the thing basically that did it with you. It was like this coming moment where it was like, Hey, I have to get clean with myself and my mm-hmm. wife and then find help. And it was like in that recovery program is where it all happened. Correct. And so it's, so I'll take you through that a little bit because I think it's, it's interesting and important and it's important for me to reflect on it. So when I, I went to the first, I went to my first meeting the day after I came clean to my ex-wife because wow. I had to, in my mind, I had to validate for her that I was serious about this and that it wasn't just lip service. And so I went to this meeting. I remember I was living in Brooklyn, New York at the time. And I went to this meeting. I'd never been, I showed up early. Um, and I was there really, really early. And I helped the guy that was there set up the chairs and the tables. And, you know, a big part of any 12 step program is, you know, being of service. And the idea that I would just show up early and help this guy put the chairs out and set up the books and all these things. I was like, wow, that felt really good. Like, I haven't done that in so long, you know, trying to help somebody else. And then I sat and listened and, and I realized like everybody here is just like me. And it was like the first time in my life where I felt like, oh, wow, like I'm, this is where I belong now because these people are just like me and I, I need to figure out how to get to where they're at because they're not, most of them are not gambling anymore. Mm. Um, and so then I just followed the path you know, went from one meeting a week to two meetings a week to three meetings a week in the beginning. And I did everything that was asked of me and, um, you know, I learned there that, you know, I need to anticipate the consequences of my actions and that, you know, my choices matter and that, you know, I can put up roadblocks in my life. And, you know, I started to get honest with myself and take responsibility. And that, I mean, that's been the greatest gift I've gotten out of it is like what we were saying in the beginning is like to tell your story, like openly to other people without the fear of judgment or without the fear of retribution or without the fear of, you know, embarrassment is like one of the greatest gifts I've ever had. Like to sit here and talk about this, I would never would have fathomed that 10 years ago. Like and tell somebody, you know, like I had a problem, I was an addict and I couldn't control myself and I took money from here and I did this to my ex-wife and my kids and like, it's just life. I did it and it's my story and there's nothing I can do. I can't take it back. So what do you do with it? You hide it or you share it so people can get something good out of it. A hundred percent, man. And you said it's been nine years now? Yeah, over nine years. Thank you, man. <laughs> Congratulations, man. That is tough, hard work, yeah. and so inspiring, <laughs> man. Like, holy smokes. Yeah. I um, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for this whole thing, man. I want to dive in now. The last ten minutes we've got uh, with what you do now, because that was super interesting to me. It's yeah. like helping young athletes. Like, oh, sweet. Okay, so can you just walk us through quickly what that is, and then I'd love to know, like what kind of stuff we as dads can take from what you do mm. and implement in our, ki- in our kids' lives. So yeah, what is it that you actually do? Okay, so um, I am a certified mental performance consultant. So that's in the field of sports psychology. Um, I have a master's degree in sports psychology, which I, I obtained about uh, in March of 2020. So actually, I had, this is my second career. Um, I always knew that I wanted to do something in sports, but I never had the courage to do it. 
Um, that was part of my issue, I think, for a very long time is that I resented that I was doing something that I didn't want to do. Um, but through recovery, I really came to believe that helping others was something that was really important to me because of the feeling I get from it. It makes me feel like a better person. And it makes me feel like I'm giving something back and in turn, I get something. And I wanted to have a life like that. So I was like, well, what can I do that puts those two things together? And you know, I didn't know what the answer was at first. I just knew I wanted to pursue another career. And after some research and some work, and I got some advice from, from the outside, some coaching, I had some career coaching. Um, I came to this conclusion that I want to do this. So I went back to school. I, I quit my first career, which I'd been in for almost 20 years and went back to school, started over, which was very difficult, put some strain on my marriage. Um, I wouldn't say it's the reason why we're divorced, but I would definitely say that it didn't help. <laughs> and, uh, but now my practice is I work with young athletes anywhere from the age of nine, believe it or not, um, all the way up to the age of 21. Uh, I work with them mostly on a one-on-one -on -one basis, although that can vary. And I work with them on their mental skills. You know, what are the things that we can do from a mental perspective to make ourselves better performers, but also better people, right? And um, it does certainly tie into parenting quite a bit for a lot of reasons. Wow. Okay. That is so cool. And I love that this exists. Uh, and, and my first thought is like, I wonder if parents use this to like be slave drivers to their kids to like make sure they get into like the best schools and programs. So that's like a little judgment that I have. And I don't know if that's true. Maybe you can speak to that. That's a great, no, no, no. I, I, I love that because it's something that I've been observing. You know, I see, like I look to see, or at least try to look under the surface to see like, what are the motivations of the parent? And I think there's some element of, Hey, I want my kid to be a really great athlete and maybe it's going to help them get a scholarship. But what I find from most parents is, and there's, and maybe this is a, a selection bias because the parents that hire me or bring me on to help their kids are really just, they're more open-minded. But I think parents just want their kids to have all the resources at their disposal to not only succeed athletically, but also to have life skills. And a lot of what I do is it, it kind of crosses over into the classroom, into social world, into right? We're te I'm teaching them life skills about how to deal with adversity, how to deal with things that I can't control, um, how to, you know, keep the focus on themselves versus worrying about what goes on around them. Um, and sports just happens to be a big part of their lives, but it's just one lens is to, you know, to sort of communicate through and educate through. Um, so that's, a, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I, I, I love doing it. I think, you know, parents get a bad rap and I have the same bias and I'm a parent. I, I, I tend to look at people and go like, oh, why are they doing this? Like, do they really need to do it? But what I've found, you know, what I've learned, you know, is, you know, when, when I have a preconceived notion about working with somebody, particularly someone on the younger side, actually it's the best time to start because they're blank slates. And right. what happens to high school kids is they develop a way of thinking that, can be very counterproductive, right? They become very outcome oriented. They become very fixed minded, if you want to call it that, where they're like, I can, I'm good at this and I'm not good at this. And they don't look at it as, hey, I can get better at this or I really love this. Let me get better. And so when you get them younger, you could start to build a foundation for like, hey, if you love this, do it. You're going to get better. You can't control all these other things. Just focus on yourself. And that having that ability to build that foundation in them is, is huge. And I, I love that. Um, but I, I, I love working with all young people. It's just, there's just a lot of hope in it. And um, yeah. I think I do a pretty good job of connecting to them. 
Yeah. So I, as you're saying that, I'm like, okay, these are the things that you do with them that everyone else goes like, oh, why don't they teach this in school? Resiliency, hard work, mental fortitude, mm-hmm. like practices to keep them grounded, all this kind of stuff. Like as you're saying this, I'm going like, I want this for my kids, you yeah. know, something outside of me. And maybe that's a point we'll touch on too. How important is it for kids to have a mentor or a coach outside of the parents? I think I've learned that it's huge now based on doing what I do because I, what I've seen in my, my, the few years I've been doing this with, with young people is I think the, and you know, this is apparent, right? If you, if you tell your child something that their initial reaction, a lot of times is to like, just blow you off or be like, they, they take it as the way I explain it to parents is like, if you are critical of their athletic performance, all they hear is that you don't love me. Right. Like, and it's so exaggerated, but it's the truth, right? Like I'm your son, I'm your daughter. Like, I don't want to hear from you that I should have done this on the field or why did you do that? Or no, what they want is you to put their arm around them and say, Hey, great, great job. I love watching you play. Let's go get ice cream. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the easiest thing to do, but when someone else says it, who doesn't have a vested interest in it, like me, like it doesn't matter for them. I'm not they're not coming home to me at night. They're not looking for my love. They're not looking for my attention, but I am helping them and I'm doing it in a non-judgmental mental way and I'm showing them respect. And so they gravitate to that because like this person really cares about me and he, he has no reason to care about me other than to say that maybe my parents are paying him. But it, to me, it's to them, it's, it's trans, it's genuine, right? They don't, yeah. they don't care if this guy cares about me. Like that's all I care about. So it does go a long way. And parents are getting smarter about that. I think parents realize like, Hey, I can't be everything to my kids, especially in the athletic realm, because there's so much emotion tied up in it. Right. And they're not going to listen to me or they're trying to please me. Even if the parents think they're doing all the right things, the kids are still thinking that they have to please the parents. And that's really, really difficult and challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I I just remember my first year playing hockey, there was a kid on the team and he'd, you know, fall down once in a while because he'd be running Mm -hmm. and we were like six or seven. And I could just hear every time he was on the, on the ice, his mom yelling, get up, Shane, get up. And I'm just going like, oh my God, Mm. he comes to the bench crying. And that's like, oh my goodness. And so I love the reframe of going like, look, you as a parent, tell them they're doing a good job, support them, love them and let the coach do the work of yeah. like, here's what I saw. Here's how you can get better. Right. And you raise a really good point about coaches, right? Even if we disagree with coaches and how they approach things, the philosophies, how they handle kids, if they're not in danger, then that's just part of life, right? We're all going to have a boss. We're all going to have a teacher. We're all going to have somebody that we work with that we don't like, and we don't like the way they do things. And that's the way I approach it as a dad. Like, I don't love what this coach is doing but you know what? I'm not coaching, right? So my kid's not in harm's way. This guy's just not very good, but he's doing it. And my kid's going to have to learn how to deal with it. You're not playing and you don't like it. And I tell all kids this, my own kids. And I tell the kids I work with, you can have a conversation with your coach. If you don't like your role on the team, or you don't like the way you're being spoken to or whatever it is, you can go talk to them. Now I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying you have a choice. So how, is, how important is it to you to play more or to play here or play there or do this? If it's important, then you need to figure out a way to have that conversation because otherwise, who's going to do it for you? The adult? Well, that's not going to really help you. Mm. And that's really hard. But, but I'm, I'm a big advocate of that. Like, hey, you just got to figure it out. And, uh, and then my job is to give them the tools to do that. 
Um, and I try really hard to help them think about the options and how they might do that and, you know, get, get put them in a better position to succeed in life. Yeah. And, and, uh, one quick comment before the final question here is that, uh, like I talk on this podcast a lot about sort of village and the way that it used to be, so to speak in the olden days. And I don't want to go back to the olden days. I don't want to be a caveman myself, but what I do think is important is community and village because like for the vast majority of humanity, we would have grown up as children with our parents in like a tribe or a village or whatever you want to call it. And there would have been other people around. We wouldn't have had to just listen to our parents Mm -hmm. and the way we live now, it's like our parents are supposed to be everything for us. And we, as parents take on this massive role of everyone in the community. And there's that's so silly. And so to bring coaches into it, I think is vital, whether it's coaches or performance trainers or like even grandparents like bring someone else into your kids lives so i love that you're doing this work yeah it sounds extremely important again you raise a a great point there and it's something that i think about a lot because 50 years ago in our country right most families were one income families and dad went to work and mom stayed home and the emphasis on money and the need for money and the importance of money was a was a lot different now today we have most families are two f- multiple working families. We have divorced families. So if you have two parents who are working and they're working hard to, to pay all the bills and do everything. And then on the weekend, you know, they see their kids and like, I think there's just this inherent guilt in a lot of us as parents. Like we have to like make sure our, our kids have everything and we feel bad that we're not always there for them. So when we are there for them, we're always trying to overcompensate and we have to do more right? We have to do more. And it's, it's not about them. It's about us. They're going to be okay. Right. It's about us making ourselves feel like we have a purpose as a parent. Like if I don't have control, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not giving them advice, if I'm not like, you know, it's like, you don't have to, right. You don't have to be everything. And the kids can actually figure some of this stuff out on their own. In fact, they want to, kids want to solve their own problems. They want to have autonomy. They want to feel like they're competent enough to go out and make a choice. And even if it's the wrong choice, they figure it out and they want to be able to do that. And I think the worst thing that anybody could do to the kids is, is to not let them make some mistakes because then it's, you setting yourself up for a life of failure because every mistake is going to be under the magnifying glass and perfectionism is rampant. Dude. And when I tell you it's so rampant, much it is rampant with every kid that I work with at some level, there's a fear of making a mistake. There's a fear of doing something wrong. You know, they, they get a lot of anxiety, especially as it relates to sports and you know, adults are doing that. You know, adults have a big role in that. Some of it's human nature, right? Our brains are programmed that way. Great. But parents are exacerbating it. Coaches are exacerbating it. The money we spend on sports is exacerbating it. The kids don't know that it costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to play sports and traveling three hours on a week, right? All these things add up to a kid who feels the pressure of, if I don't perform, I'm letting somebody down. And it's really, really challenging to watch. And so having people who can normalize that or at least sort of put a dent in that thinking goes a long way to sort of taking some of the edge off of, what can be some really significant long-term consequences for development. Yeah, that is all gold, man. And uh, the last thing I want, if you've got like two extra minutes I here, do, I can make it work. Can, can you give us like a few basic practices that you share with kids just to get them more thoughtful, resilient, confident? Like what are some of the things you actually sure. do with these kids? Excellent. So 
Um, first and foremost, I mean, it's all age dependent, uh, I would say, but by and large with my teenagers, I make them all try meditation as a first step. Okay. And the reason why I do that is, is because I want them to heighten their awareness of what's going on inside of themselves and mindfulness meditation does that, right? What am I thinking? Okay. I'm thinking that, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a thought, let it go. Right. The more heightened their awareness is, the more ammunition they have to make changes. And that always comes in the sport context of like, what am I thinking when I make a mistake on the basketball court? Okay, now I know what I'm doing. I'm beating myself up in my head. Let's get away from that. So meditation's number a number one. And a lot of them really do like it. it I was a little reluctant because I was like, well, are they going to be able to do this? But they like it. I like. They say I like to relax. They say it helps me. I'm starting to understand things a little bit better. I kind of have a better handle on my thoughts. So that's definitely one. Um, goal setting is something I do pretty standard in terms of, okay, like I want to be this. I want to get to some level of sport. Okay, that's awesome. Well, what are you going to do on a consistent basis that aligns with that every single day? And having process-oriented goals where I say, I did this every day. And just by checking the box, by virtue of doing it, I'm building my confidence to say like, I can be consistent in my routine. I'm actually putting in the work. Maybe I'm not where I want to be yet, but everything I do is aligned. So we work on that quite a bit. And then I I work on a lot, something I use a lot with athletes and it's in the sport context as well is something I call reset routine, which is basically like when you're having those negative thoughts or you're having those negative emotions and you're sort of in a bad place, how do I get myself back into the present moment? So some of it's mindfulness, right? Being mindful of what I'm thinking and feeling, but then saying, okay, what's my strategy to get out of that? I'm having negative thoughts. Okay. I take a deep breath, kind of reset myself. I refocus. I have some sort of phrase that I use. I visualize something. I look at something that reminds me I have to be where my feet are and I go again. And I say, you're never going to get your mind. You're never going to stop your mind from being distracted, right? It just happens. We can't control it. But what you can do is when you get that thought and you see it and you recognize it, what am I doing with it? Am I latching onto it and, 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 and wandering around in, in a, in a, in a transfer in the next five minutes and, and not paying attention to what I'm supposed to be doing? Or am I like, Hey, I got to get out of this. This is how I'm going to do it. And that applies, right? You can apply that in a classroom, right? Your mind wanders off. You're thinking about, you know, going to, you know, going to the, the amusement park this weekend, but you're supposed to be paying attention to the geometry teacher. Oh, I catch myself. Okay. Like, Hey, go, go do your math. Right. It's the same idea, but the routine of it, the constant consistent practice and execution of it is what makes it second, second nature. So that we're just getting to a place where when we catch ourselves wandering off, we're right back into the moment where we want to be and we're not wasting time. So that's something I do with them a lot. And I, I, I swear by that. I think it's something that I do myself. And so, um, it, it tends to work really well. Amazing. Thank you for giving us those. Mm-hmm. And do you work with only local kids or do you work uh, online? No, COVID has, has expanded my practice. I thought that it would all be in person, you know, when I conceived of this because it's just a person-to-person business and then COVID happened and everything is remote. Um, has been for the last year and a half. I do have a couple of clients that uh, have requested to see me in person. So those are, those people are local, obviously, but I work with people everywhere. So um, I've had clients in California. Um, I've had clients in, you know, I live in the New York city area. I have clients here, there and everywhere. And, um, you know, my practice has been growing. So thank, thank, thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So where can people find you then? Sure. You can find me. Um, my website is Michael V as in Vincent Huber, 
H-U-B-E-R.com is my website. And uh, you can find me at that same, Michael V. Huber at Instagram is also where I post a lot of my my content. Amazing. Okay. Uh, any last thoughts, words, uh, links that you want to drop in here? Um, this has been fantastic, man. No, I'll just say thank you for having me. I, I love these conversations. I think they're really important for fathers because I think, you know, there need to be more places for dads to go to, to know that it's okay to struggle and that we're all going through some of the same stuff. So it's just a privilege to be able to, to talk to you here today. And I appreciate you having me come on. Yeah, absolutely. This went uh, so well. I am absolutely pumped and really, really appreciate you diving so deeply. So Mike Huber, thank you for being on the dad work podcast. Thank you, Kurt. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world. To find out more about everything that we talked about in the episode today, including show notes, resources, and links to subscribe, leave a review, work with us, go to dad.work slash pod. That's D-A-D dot W-O-R-K slash P-O-D. Type that into your browser, just like a normal URL, dad.work slash pod. You'll find everything there you need to become a better man, a better partner, and a better father. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.